So today we are talking about the Middle Ages. Um, so I thought it'd be helpful a little bit to review just a tad. Um, so if you remember, we're talking about essentially 2,000 years of church history, and it's kind of easy to break it up in your mind of 500 years, 500 years, 500 years, 500 years. So we spent a lot, most of this so far has been that first 500 years because so much happened there. Um, Last time, Logan changed it up a little bit, and it was less kind of linear time frame, and he, he walked through a whole series of councils that happened. That was all the way from in that first 500 years well into the second 500 years. I'm kind of going back, and we're going to start um, right at the year about 476, and we're going to actually going to cover a whole lot of ground today because there's really... The Middle Ages is very difficult to, I think, write about for historians to teach about um, because it's really more of a geopolitical history than it is a theological one because there's really not as much uh, theological debate near as much uh, as is really, like as we go through this, you're going to probably be confused because it seems like, well, it really just seems like we're studying like geography or something and going into world history. But the thing about the Middle Ages is it's the church and the state are just so linked that you can't really talk about one without the other. Um, so this lesson is called Schism, Scholars, and Soldiers. So we're going to talk about scholars, which is the rise of scholasticism. We'll get into that and like the university system as we know it today arose from the medieval times. Uh, schisms. We're going to talk about a couple different east-west breaks that we'll get into. And then soldiers, we're going to talk about the Crusades. A lot of, uh, and this is this really is when we start getting into the nitty gritty of not good things happening in the church. So the medieval medieval times get a really bad rap, and rightfully so, um, in a lot of ways. And then I do I did want to go over at the end some of the good things that arise in this period, but it's going to seem like as we go along here, we're just highlighting well how you know terrible a lot of things were. But so I'm going to set the stage here. Actually, I need one of my own maps. I'm going to steal this so I can know what I'm talking about. So this map here, y'all look at this one. This is, so we've talked a lot about the Roman Empire since we've been in here, since we've been doing this whole class. I have thought it'd be helpful to print out a map so you can kind of visualize it. So I remember I've been trying to highlight that there is a difference between the West and the East. So where we're starting right now is about the year 476. So this is after, after Augustine that we talked about. Um, so the year 476. In the year 476 is when historians kind of agree that the western half of the Roman Empire fell. And that happened through your other map. These are what we call the Germanic tribes. So in around, this was, this was happening in the, that whole 500 years, but what essentially is happening is these Germanic tribes, um, polit, or polit, yeah, kind of geologically took over and militarily took over the Western political half of the Roman Empire. So I thought this was a fun map because it's really interesting. Look at look at all these different uh, Germanic tribes and their names. So Angles, they ended up being modern-day England. Um, you have the Franks, that's modern-day France. So a lot of the modern European countries that we think of today arose essentially from these Germanic tribes that took over the Western Europe. Um, Another one was the Huns. Do y'all remember uh, Mulan? Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Well, that is uh, 
That actually, but that gives you a good visualization, if you remember the movie Milan, of how to kind of think about some of these Germanic tribes. Uh, they actually were kind of very barbaric. You see the vandals at the bottom there? The word uh, vandalism actually arose because of people commenting on how this Germanic group of the vandals did things. So they turned into a term vandalism. So a little interesting tidbits. Um, but the key thing to know is the western half, uh, and we're not talking, when I say this, I'm not talking about the church western half, I'm talking about the state, the Roman Empire, it fell and is no longer ruled anymore. Now the Eastern Empire remained. It's, it became what we now call the Byzantine Empire. Um, so the Byzantine Empire actually lasted all the way into, uh, uh, gosh, I don't remember the exact date, but it was a long time. So we're in the 400s now. It was well past the Crusades, which we're going to talk about, which was in like the 1200s. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention around this time period is the rise of the papacy kind of started around here. So there's a guy named Pope Leo, and the pope at this time is he's just the uh, the bishop. So when, biblically, when we think of the word bishop, that really just means elder. So we could, I mean, technically, we could call Eric and John they're bishops within our church. They're they're functioning elders. That term gradually became to mean totally different things as time went on. Um, eventually, the church structure started having a bishop that was head of the whole church in that city or that region and be the bishop of that, that region. Um, it eventually became uh, Pope Leo was the bishop of Rome, but what he did is kind of set the trajectory for the papacy as we know it now. He, he uh, highlighted or he uh, elevated what he thought the power of the, the bishop of Rome had over the rest of church. So he thought because back in this day, they had the Bishop of Rome. You had the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of um, Alexandria. So just different bishops of these different regions that they considered themselves uh, first among equals. So they all can, they were the head of their region, but they were equal with each other. Pope Leo, he's in the early, early 400s. He's the one that kind of set the stage saying, no, the Bishop of Rome has more power than the rest, you know. They might have disagreed a little bit, but he's the one that kind of laid down that precedent. He's also one of the first to defend that theologically. And um, do you all know the verse Matthew 16, 16? So that is the verse where it says, um, You are blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church. So he went along and said, Hey, that rock that he's saying is Peter. And it is not only Peter, but it is the, the papacy that, that arises from Peter. That, that that's what this church is built on. So he's, he's the one that kind of laid that groundwork, and we're going to see how that fleshed itself out over time. But it's really uh, crucial to remember Pope Leo here at the beginning. Um, oh, another interesting tidbit, Humpty Dumpty. The poem, the, that's, they think that's about the fall of Rome. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put it back together again. Because uh, they were trying the... the uh, People try, basically kings from the east tried to come and rebuild it and they couldn't, but let's just a side note. So that is the, that's kind of setting the stage for where we're at and it's extremely important because this whole time we're going to be talking about the east and the west extensively, but the east and the west, if I am ever confusing you, please let me know because I might not be thinking about it, but I could be talking about the church in the east and the west or the state in the east and the west. And there is a distinction there, but they're just so related that it, you can't really talk about one without the other. So if I'm not being clear, please let me know.
Um, in the 7th century, in the 600s, uh, we had the rise of Islam. So that's going to be very important when we start talking about the Crusades and a couple other things. Um, but Islam. Islam came, uh, came to be around this time uh, in... Yeah, Muhammad was born in the year 570. So Muhammad was extremely influenced by Christianity. And this is all happening, it's not quite in your map, but this is in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Um, he was born in that area, and then he, uh, apparent, well, obviously we would deny that this happened, but he says he was visited by the angel Gabriel, like the biblical angel Gabriel, and was given a revelation that he is, he is a great prophet. Um, and he, you know, he believed the angel, and he saw himself as the great prophet. He uh, was extremely influenced by Arianism. Do y'all remember what Arianism is? Anyone want to shout it out? So that, so that one's Gnosticism. He, he might have been... Yes. Yes, he just was created. <laughs> so Arianism is the the kind of like almost okay view, but it viewed... Well, I probably shouldn't even say that. But it viewed Christ... <laughs> as a created being. So he was he he met uh Muhammad in this time met an uh, an Arian as actually a different form of Arianism but an essentially an Arianist and he was extremely influenced by this guy. So he took his, you know, revelation from Gabriel plus his influence from Arianism and that that's what gave him this really lock hard uh monotheism because if you study Islam it's very monotheistic. There's no room for the trinity in Islam. Um but Islam has five pillars to it. Uh, they have their creed where they say, you know, no God but one. Muhammad is a prophet of God. See, they even include in their creed to highlight that Muhammad is not God. He is a prophet of God. Um, they pray five times a day. They, these are just their five pillars. They uh, give alms to the poor. They have their Ramadan fast. And then their fifth one is a pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, and I, I, bring up the, I bring this up and talk about this because this is... Uh, very linked to our, our church history, actually, is the, unfortunately, battles between Christianity and the, the Muslim world. Um, so again, the Byzantine Empire is going to last a long, a long time. Um, but once Islam arised, it especially went up, it's not on this map, but it especially went up here towards the east. And that you can think of this Byzantine Empire from this point on, its borders don't look like this anymore. It is shrinking and expanding and moving here and moving there, all because of these conquest or these uh, uh, battles, really, with with the Muslim world and the Muslim Church. Um, and that's again important to remember here in a minute when we start talking about the Crusades. Um, but also during this time period, now that's more on the east. Now we're back to the west. It's no longer the Roman Empire politically, but what it is, the politically, the West was very weak. It, I mean, it just got ran over. There's really no, there's no Roman Empire in the West anymore. But church-wise, it's actually doing uh, well, per se. The missionaries from the church in the West came to all these uh, uh, Germanic tribal groups that set up their own kingdoms in the West and uh, spread the gospel, uh, gave them Christ. And a lot of Christianity was a very heavily influenced, it was a very positive thing in the West, despite its negative you know, political, political section. And you'll even hear people refer to it as, this is when the term like Holy Mother Church was introduced because people went to the church for, uh, for their, they had you know, political problems, well, they would go to the leaders of the church. 
Um, in fact, that's another point about Attila the Hun. I mean, sorry, about, uh, I'm about to talk about Attila the Hun, about Pope Leo that we just mentioned. To highlight again how the, how the, the country was thinking about the Pope at this time, uh, Attila the Hun, one of those Germanic tribes, this is in the 400s, came and was about to attack uh, this, one of these western regions. They didn't send out, this is before the West fell, they didn't send out the emperor of Rome. Who did they send out to go talk to Attila the Hun? Pope Leo. It was really interesting. So they sent out, there's a state battle between, oh, these you know, countries are about to invade our state, and we send out a religious leader. Just obviously you can see how the power is uh, being, obviously that's more, we wouldn't send out Eric for, you know. Uh, a geopolitical battle. Um, yeah, but another thing to really remember right now is the uh, the city of Rome, in particular, in the West, was being very elevated. The um, and this is how the papacy is starting to arise. Um, okay, now moving a little bit farther down here. This is again related to the papacy. There's a document called the Donation of Constantine. This was a document. It was actually proven to be forged. But what it is is, who remembers who Constantine is? I think Logan talked about him quite a bit. So, Logan, you can't answer. All right, Logan, you can answer. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. So he, he kind of made a – he's the first one to in, introduce Christianity as right. like a more of the state religion. Well, Constantine, so this is back in the 300s. This document wasn't found until the 700s, but Constantine lived in the 300s, so just remember that. But what this forged document was and claimed to be was that Constantine in the 300s bequeathed the power of Rome to, uh, to the pope. This document turned out to be forged. It's not real, but what you're going to see is popes in this time period we are now in the 700s, 800s, into the 1200s refer back to this document that's now forged and they're saying, hey look, Constantine gave the pope the power over the state. And they, so they're, they're saying, look at this. So now you can really think, now we're into the 800s. Think about what, you know, ammo the popes have at this time. They have this forged document, but it's basically saying like, here's a letter from the emperor saying popes have uh, military uh, state power over the region. Then you have the theological arguments from Pope Leo in the beginning with Matthew 16. You have the elevation of Rome, the city, as being one of the dominant dominant powers. So all these little pieces are fitting together for this, uh, you know, elder of one city in Rome to have ruler over the entire kingdoms. Um, so this is just really important to think about because. The Roman Catholic Church is going to come back and say, well, the papacy, it is always, um, like, look at it. Just look at church history. Well, these are little tidbits you can know in your mind that the power of the papacy is not, it, it developed through geopolitical elements and things like, like this. Um, so in uh, eight, the year 800, the, um, a king of the Frankish kingdom, so this is in the west, the Franks is one of those Germanic tribes. They set up their own little kingdoms. He uh, had a really good relationship with the Pope, and this king was named Charlemagne. You may have heard of Charlemagne. Well, what he did was um, he crowned 
the pope, the emperor of, 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 the, of the kingdom. And then, so what that, historians kind of go back and they say, this was the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. So we've walked through the Western Empire at the beginning. Well, then it fell, and I've just been flying through this, but about 400 years has passed. I mean, we spent the whole first, you know, six or seven weeks of this going over 400 years. So don't get caught up in the time frame too much. But now the Holy Roman Empire has been established. They viewed this as uh, kind of the resuscitation of the old glorious Western Roman Empire. But it was a little bit different. The Germanic kingdoms were still over here farther west. So this Holy Roman Empire only occupied about that region right there, like modern-day Italy. But Rome was right at the center of it. but you'll, you'll hear a lot about the Holy Roman Empire. So it's, it's easy to get confused, these different. And this, another highlight, this was a, uh, the East, the Byzantine Empire, didn't like this and didn't agree with this. There's a lot of tension already developing between the East and the West. Um, they considered themselves, because they never fell from the original Roman Empire, they considered themselves the true Roman Empire. Like, what do you, what do you mean you're the Holy Roman Empire? You fell, you've been, you know overrun by vandals for 400 years like we're the Roman Empire so there's already a lot of tension and there has been a lot of tension brewing between the east and the west both in the church and in and uh, politically um, so now we'll talk about the it's called the Great Schism so uh, you may have heard of the Great Schism it happened in 1054 when we talk about the Great Schism we're talking about the church so the church has always viewed itself as a universal church but like I said, this tension between the East and the West has been present for a long time. Um, one of the reasons that it's been uh, um, one of the reasons that it's been tense is because of the language difference. So I think I mentioned a few weeks back that the West spoke Latin, the East spoke Greek. That's actually a really big deal. I think um, Tertullian is considered the father of Western theology because he was one of the first to start writing theological documents in Latin. Um, one, one commentator said the east and west didn't understand each other because they didn't understand each other which is funny there's tension there but they literally couldn't understand each other so that was a huge reason why there was, why there was a lot of tension um, another uh, aspect was something called the filioque clause so the Nicene Creed it speaks of the uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit so Actually, the original Nicene Creed didn't include this part, but the extended Nicene Creed that happened in a later council um, and wanted to include the, the Holy Spirit in it. But it read, We believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. In 1014, the Western Church, they're having some theological debate inserted at the end, and the Son. So they changed it to, We believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, so that was a big deal. One, because the East didn't, didn't agree with it, and if you go look at the Eastern Orthodox Church now and you go look at their version of the Nicene Creed, it's not going to contain those three words. It's not going to contain and the Son even to this day. So that's a theological debate. Um, the other aspect to it, though, is they're saying, what are you, what are you doing? You can't just go change the uh, Nicene Creed without consulting us. What is this all about? So there was the theological component that they didn't necessarily agree with, but two, they're just mad that Again, Rome, this West is kind of, you know, they're like the superiors. They're viewing themselves as the, the higher-ups, and uh, the East doesn't like that. So, again, this tension's really building. 
And then third is, and this is probably one of the bigger ones, is the East and the West, to this day, Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics are, are very divided over the nature of the papacy and who the right popes were and stuff like that. Um, well, that really came to a, a 1054 is the, the, the date that we really set this East-West schism because of stuff like this. So there was a, a new Pope Leo, not the same Pope Leo I was talking about in the 300s and 400s. This is Pope Leo the Ninth. So <laughs> this is a different Pope Leo. He wanted to send over a delegation over to the East because so Pope Leo's in the West. He's the you know the Pope of Rome, and he basically wanted to them. He sent a, a congregation over to the East and wanted them to basically uh, admit that the Bishop of Rome has more power than them. So he sent over a guy named uh, Humbert. Well, Humbert goes over there to the, the, they call themselves the patriarchs, to one of the patriarchs in the East, and basically says, like, you know, let's agree that Rome is kind of the ultimate power. And they said, no, we're not going to listen to that. They just, they're like, we're not even going to accept your delegation that you're sending over here. So what the patriarchs in the East did was excommunicated Humbert and Pope Leo from the church. And the Pope Leo's like, what do you, you can't excommunicate me, I'm the Pope. So he excommunicates them. And here you have the Great Schism. To this day, um, they've never like truly reconciled. But it's really from the point of 1054 that you can really start thinking of the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. Um, and that, that was really highlighted in this Great Schism. Um, and then we're going to get even, so that's 1054, we're going to start talking about the Crusades here in a minute, and that's going to even further uh, show their divide, which we'll get into. So now we'll jump into the uh, Crusades. So who knows what the Crusades are before we even talk about it. So most people... Yes, yeah. Right. So we hear, we hear the Crusades, and it, or at least you know, a lot of times we don't even really know what it was. We just remember, like, people don't like Christians because of the Crusades. Well, that's, I mean, that's unfortunately a pretty good reason. Um, so about 50 years after the East-West Schism, so now the East and the West are they're, they're very divided, very, very divided, but still, you know, talking to one another and stuff. But um, these Muslim armies, and this has been kind of happening for... This whole time period, we're talking hundreds of years right now, this this uh, Byzantine Empire on the east, the boundaries have been shrinking and growing. Well, eventually the Muslim armies, and when I say armies, I really mean armies, like these are military military fights, uh, conquered Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem. Well, the church didn't like that you know, Muslims had the Holy Land. I mean, and still to this day, you know, there's all kinds of uh, turmoil and debate about this particular piece of land over there. Um, but the, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, is like, hey, we need some help. So they talked to the West, his, another pope named Pope Urban, and they said, can you, like, we need some help. We want to take back the Holy Land. You're, you're part of the church, too. What can we do? A guy named Pope Urban is the, the historians say he's the uh, instigator of the Crusades. So he started giving actual preaching and, and speeching, speeching, and speeches saying, we need to go on a crusade. He would call it a crusade. He would even, he did things and said, if you go on a crusade, you can skip purgatory. So that's another sign that all these theological developments have been happening in this time frame, such as purgatory, 
which we didn't even talk about that in the first you know few hundred years because it wasn't there. Um, so stuff like that has been developing. But they listened. They said, "Okay, well, great. Let's do it. Let's go take back the holy. Let's go take back the Holy Land." They used all kinds of different ways to justify this. Um, Ephesians six ten through eighteen. Does anybody does that ring a bell? Anybody remember what that's about? Yes, the armor of God. Exactly. So they would interpret stuff like Ephesians six and apply that militarily and say, "Well, we we need to literally put on the literal armor of God and go take back the Holy Land." Um, so they use that to defend it. There's also the just war theory that dates back all the way to Augustine. Um, the just war, just war uh, view is basically, and you know, a lot of us would still hold to that now, basically saying war is okay if it's fought for a just uh, reason, if it's uh, to defend and promote peace, um, then then it can be considered a just war. Augustine kind of uh, started that, but they. They went, so they talked a lot about Augustine and said, well, look, the Pope, Pope Urban, is insta- he's the one saying we should do this. So if we have his backing, then obviously we can, we can go to war here. So they used that. And the Crusades, they, they get a bad rap, and they should, because it was literally, you know, Christians putting on armor and, you know, killing Muslims to take uh, the Holy Land. So it's kind of a dark period in our, our church history for sure. Uh, another little... Fun fact about that, and you remember, I don't know what the Knights Templar is. You remember the Knights Templar? So, I mean, you've you probably heard of the term in what, if you watch a movie like National Treasure or Indiana Jones, they talk about the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar was actually is a real group. They were a actually came from a mona, uh, monastery monastery. So they were actually a, and think about what we've learned about monastics early in the church. You know, secluded, starving themselves out in the desert. Well, the Knights Templar was a monastic group that were, it was like a warrior monastic group. So even the monasteries have developed and changed. Like they went from disassociating themselves completely from the world and the culture to literally fighting battles for it. Um, But the Knights Templar is, you can look them up there, a fun, fun, a famous uh, group. They were literally uh, fighting monks. Um, What they did was interesting. They're the ones that, are considered somewhat the fathers of the banking system as we have it now. So people in, in the West would travel to Jerusalem to go to the Holy Land and visit the Holy Land. They would uh, um, give a, a, a deposit slip to the, to the Knights Templar to protect them. So that way they wouldn't have to carry their money on the journey all the way to Jerusalem and then give their deposit slip to the Knights Templar group that was already in Jerusalem and get their money back. So the Knights Templar actually made a lot of money through this, um, and it's they're considered one of the first like multinational corporations, and the banking system kind of grew from some of these ideas. Um, but because of that money and just weirdness, they have a lot of conspiracy theories around them. Like I think the Indiana Jones is really about. I've actually never seen the Indiana Jones, but the Holy Grail is <laughs> very involved with it because uh, of the Knights Templar. They think that my Knights Templar are the ones that actually found the Holy Grail, and I mean, that's all conspiracy stuff. But, um, but the first crusade, there was actually about seven uh, crusades. The first one happened in 1095. Um, so Pope Irwin called there, and this lasted over a period of about 200 years. So seven crusades in a span of 200 years. Uh, yeah. Is this, like, is when you say the church against, like, the Muslims, is it, like, the Roman, or the East and West separately fighting? Right, so the East, 
The East is the ones asking the West for help. So it's both. Yeah. And yeah, it's church, churchmen. Primarily that's where they were located. The, the Muslims were pressing right. in most on the eastern right. the east side. And there's actually, there was a lot of stuff going on in the West uh, militarily. And they tried to get into Spain. There's something called the Battle of Tours you might have heard of. That has to do with some of these kind of battles on the western half. Uh, the Crusades were mainly, we highlight the Crusades because it was over the Holy Land. We're in you know, Palestine and Jerusalem. But yeah, it's the West and the East Church. And that that's a good dis- quick question because in the Fourth Crusade, we'll, we'll talk about it, but that we'll, we'll get, get to that in a second. Um, yeah, so the First Crusade, Pope Urban calls them over. The people from the West come over to help the, the church in the East, and they actually, militarily, it was successful. I don't, it's hard to say that you know, this type of war was successful, but they reconquered Jerusalem. Um, the Second Crusade happened about 80 years later. Um, one of the crusader little kingdoms that they set up called Edessa fell again. The Muslims took it back, and, uh, um, and they lost. So the Second Crusade was militarily not a success. Uh, the Third Crusade was, and again, they're all very similar, but it's basically just people, you know, they lost Jerusalem, they won Jerusalem back. They lost Jerusalem, they won Jerusalem back. And so the Third Crusade was, it involved, people sometimes have heard of the King of England named Richard the Lionheart of England. He was very heavily involved in, in the Third Crusade. He actually, um, Crusade didn't work. They didn't, they lost that one, but you might have heard of Richard the Lionheart. But the fourth one is one we need to highlight because remember the the West, church people from the West are coming over to help the East. Well, political, uh, interesting uh, diatribes, because remember the schism is happening. They still are very tense relationship there. Political things happen to where they actually end up sacking the city of Constantinople. Uh, not even They're not even fighting the Muslims at this point. They sack their own church city. Constantinople's in here in the east over here. It's one of the leading cities in the east. And the east is like, well, what in the world? You're supposed to be fighting the Muslims over here and you're sacking you know, Constantinople. So that was like the nail in the coffin between the east and the west. And uh, the schism, So the schism is officially 1054, but after that, there's kind of no hope for reconciliation. Um, then there was three more crusades, same thing. In the end, the crusades ended up being a uh, kind of a disaster. In fact, Busenitz, the guy that wrote this uh, workbook, described it, he said a kind of an interesting way to think about it is comparing it to the Vietnam War. Um, we get over there, we're doing things, and then we kind of lose, and then at, at some point we're just kind of like, whoa, what's going on? And then you just kind of, Think okay, this didn't go super well, and then we just kind of leave. That's kind of how the Crusades went. But a helpful when I think about the Crusades, we can't really defend it. It's not something that should be defended, really. But if people ever bring it up, what you say is, "Well, read the New Testament, read the Bible." It's obviously, not okay. We're called to love our enemies, and I mean, there's definitely a, an aspect of just war. I think we could talk about, but not in the Crusades. What we just say is, what happened in the Crusades was completely and totally you know, not biblical. I'm not going to try to defend it. I don't have to. God is still sovereign and over history. Um, but it's something that happened, and well, uh, it's unbecoming of Christians to do that, but it happened. So I wouldn't try to defend it at all, I'm saying. So now we'll get to the last of our uh, S's, which is scholasticism. Uh, so scholasticism is uh, kind of a, it's, it's kind of a way of thinking that started to develop here that 
really set the trajectory for um, modernism, the scientific method, um, uh, the Enlightenment. And this is, these are hundreds of years after this, but this is kind of the first that this way of thinking developed. But what it also led to was the university system. So think about colleges like Oxford, Cambridge. I mean, Oxford was founded in 1096. So that's like right after this East-West schism that we're talking about. So it's wild because we're coming up in 2096 will be the thousandth year that Oxford has been in existence. That's wild. I mean, tech is about to celebrate their centennial. We'll think about that times 10. That's just a really long time. Um, but why that developed is because of this way of thinking known as scholasticism. And this is really where people were trying to reconcile and think about how faith and reason interacted with each other. Um, they were, people started asking questions about how that happened. Like, uh, could pure reason or could our human mind find out true knowledge about the world around us? Or can that only be done by faith? Um, can something be false in a reasonable sense, but true in a uh, spiritual faith sense? So I'm not even here to answer those questions, but those are the type of questions that were being asked and people started thinking about. Um, and that's really the, the what scholasticism is, is to take this um, a whole new way of thinking, maybe where you have a thesis, an antithesis, and uh, an answer. You, uh, it's another way of thinking. It's called the dialectical method, where you, uh, you synthesize things. So you have this truth, this truth. You synthesize it, and it becomes a new truth. Um, not a new truth, but a better way of explaining these things. So we don't need to get too into the dialectical method. But um, the whole, the whole main, main concept is to think about a new way of thinking that had never been thought before that is much more conducive. Honestly, we are extremely influenced by this way of thinking now without even really realizing it. Um, a couple scholastics that uh, were involved, or, or two of the famous scholastics, were Anselm of Canterbury and uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, oh, another extremely important point I need to talk about. Scholasticism, one of the main things that, it, that caused it was a a re uh, a re upbringing of Greek philosophy into the West. So uh, Plato in, in in Scholasticism, it's primarily Aristotle. So this is mainly on the West because if you think about it, the Greek speaking East, they spoke Greek. Well, the Greek philosophers spoke Greek, so they had already had these writings for a long time and had already kind of used them. And, and so, if you look at Eastern Orthodox right now, it's extremely influenced and more heavily relying on Greek philosophy versus maybe uh, versus some aspects of Roman Catholicism. And that's that's a lot of the reason why, because the Greek philosophy was always present there. Well, in the West, you kind of had this. Uh, uh, we talked a lot about Greek philosophy in the early early people, like Justin Martyr and those guys. That was real early church. So again, we've covered so much ground here. A lot of that Greek philosophy has been lost in this time period. Now we're talking about that being reinvigorated, particularly Aristotle. But that's really important to mention. I, I can't forget that. Another interesting component of why that happened is uh, Islam. Uh, these, there's a lot of uh, Islamic philosophers that relied and used heavily some of these Greek systems. In fact, the... Uh, one of the oldest university systems is actually a Muslim university. I don't remember the name, but it started in like 890 or something like that, and it's still present today. So we are very influenced by, uh, or that, that is how 
um, the Greek system kind of came back up in the West as a lot of time through these Islamic Muslim philosophers. Um, but so back to where I was, Anselm of Canterbury and Thomas Aquinas. Anselm, he, he's used a lot by the reformers because he came up with the, not came up with, but he articulated the satisfaction theory of the atonement. So a lot of the view of the atonement at this time period was that Jesus' death paid a ransom to Satan. And there might be some, uh, you know, element of truth in there somewhere, but he's the one that really highlighted the view that, no, we are, we are paying a debt that we, or Jesus is paying a debt that we owe to God. We have sinned against the Father. Jesus' death on the cross canceled that debt that we owe towards the Father. So um, instead of looking at it as a paying off Satan, we're now having the wrath of God rightfully on us removed because of Jesus Christ. Um, so Calvin talked a lot about Anselm from, from the satisfaction theory of the atonement. Um, another very important guy is Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas, uh, he's, an, he's a very, very complex individual. Um, he, he, what he did really well was take all this Aristotle philosophy and use it to explain, uh, or, or people were wondering what to do. They're like, okay, well, we've, remember, they're kind of thinking in new ways. How does all this Aristotle, how does this philosophy fit? Should it fit? That's even a good question. Um, what do we do with it? Aristotle kind of did a good job of molding them and synthesizing them. And I say good job, I also mean, could mean bad job. Like he's very debated. Um, a lot of people would say that that was a horrible thing. And you know, I'm not here to say that yes or no. But it was a very debated topic because of what he did by combining a lot of this Aristot Aristotelian philosophy with faith. Um, like Aristotle had this idea of substance and accidents. So he, he looked at physical things and he would say, what, uh, what is that thing really? And we'll get to why I'm explaining this in a minute, but think about uh, this chair. There's a chair hitting, sitting here. Well, there's a chair over there that looks a lot different than this chair right here, right? You know, there's a chair in the other room. They're all chairs, right? But they're, they look different. But there's something about it that makes it a chair. Right? It's cherish. It's cherish, yeah. But, <clears throat> so Aristotle would say that there is a substance to this chair. The substance of it is what makes it a chair, even though it can look different. What these differences are are accidents. That's just his philosophical term for putting it that way. Well, <clears throat> this is important because transubstantiation and the Eucharist, the Roman Catholic view of the Mass, what do they believe? They believe that the body and blood of Christ actually, or the, sorry, the, the bread and the wine actually become the, uh, the body and blood of Christ when you partake of it. Well, Aristotle, that had, been, that had been developing in the church and actually uh, considered as true even before Aquinas was born. When I say considered as true, I mean like they considered as true. I don't consider that as true, but just to clarify. Um, but that, that theory was before Aquinas. But what Aquinas did was apply these Aristotelian concepts to that to, ex to help people like understand like, oh, that's how it works type of thing. So he would say the, the uh, bread and the wine, when they, you ingest, when they ingested it, its accident was bread and wine, but its substance of what it actually was was Christ's body and blood. So he was using these Aristotelian concepts. To, so that's one of the ways we would view Aquinas as bad. You know, that is not good. Um, 
He, but he did a lot of stuff with the doctrine of God that a lot of people would consider good. People are debating Aquinas right now. Like, he's very heavily debated even now. I'm not here to give sides or anything. He's just a very complex individual. I'm just highlighting how much influence he's had. I mean, if you go on some, like, online forums right now, you're going to find people debating about Aquinas. And, look, he was born in 1225. So I'm just trying to highlight the, the uh, profound influence that he has had on the church, whether good or bad. Um, he wrote something called the... Uh, Summa Theologia, theology. It's, it's a big, another one of the good things I, I do consider this a good thing is help develop a systematic theology. <clears throat> so this theologia, theologica, summa theologica. Basically, it's his grand systematic theology. He was trying to systematize the faith. This has already been started in people we talked about in the early, but early church. But he he again was highlighting systematizing the faith so that we can uh, do theology and explain it. Um, He wrote, it's a tome. He wrote tons of it, and then actually at the very end of his life, he claims he had a massive experience with God and quit, so it was never finished. And he he even said that he considers everything that he written to be considered as meaningful as straw. So, but people still read that and are extremely influenced by it. Um, It's considered a very important work. But he thought it was straw. Okay, so that has highlighted a lot of the uh, not so great things that we, you know, a lot of I've mentioned a lot of you know bad theological developments, um, a lot of corruption, you know, the Crusades, a lot of not good things. But I did want to talk about some of the good things. One of the things to remember is you, you know, we go through here. The church is always going to prevail. There was never, you can't look back at the Middle Ages and say, oh, the church didn't exist then. That's not right. There's always been the true church. Remember our pillars from the very beginning. They've always existed. There's always been true Christians preaching the true gospel, worshiping the true God, even even in the midst of you know military Christian battles. So I wanted to highlight a couple of those guys. One of them was Anselm of Canterbury that we just mentioned. That theory of the atonement is very good and influential in our own way we would articulate it now. Um, but I wanted to read a couple of quotes from some of these guys. Um, <clears throat> Anselm highlighting uh, being saved not on the basis of our deeds, but because of God's mercy. Um, Look, O Lord, upon the face of your anointed, who became obedient to you even unto death, and let not the scars of his wounds be hidden from your eyes forever that you may remember how great a satisfaction for our sins you have received from him. Would, O Lord, that you would put in the balance the sins by which we have deserved your wrath and the sufferings which your innocent son endured for us? Truly, O Lord, his sufferings will appear heavier and more worthy that through them you should pour out your mercies upon us than our sins, that through them you should restrain your compassion and anger. So that quote right there really highlights Christ removing the wrath of God that, that we are due. Thank you. There's another guy named Bernard. So Anselm was uh, the archbishop, which is in their view at the time, like a lower rung from the bishop of Canterbury. Then there's another guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. He had founded a monastery, and he's in France. But he also had a lot of good things to say. I wanted to read what, what he wrote. Um, Here's him talking about our righteousness being as filthy rags. What can all our righteousness be before God? 
Shall it not, according to the prophet, be viewed as a filthy rag? And if it be strictly judged, shall not all our righteousness turn out to be mere unrighteousness and deficiency? What then shall it be concerning sins, when not even all righteousness itself can answer for itself? Wherefore, vehemently exclaiming with the prophet, Enter not into judgment with your servant, O Lord. Let us with all humility flee to mercy, which alone can save our souls. And another quote by Bernard. Nobody will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Conscious of our deficiency, we shall cry to heaven and God will have mercy on us. And on that day we shall know that God has saved us, not by the righteous works that we ourselves have done, but according to his mercy. So that's honestly very comforting to, to read quotes like that in the midst of what we've talked about. That the, the true gospel is, is still present. Um, and it always was. So never, never look at the Middle Ages and think that the gospel was gone. In fact, in the second, I want to go over, after one more quote, I want to go over a couple of really good things. Um, so after the centuries of Bernard, Logan's going to talk about this next week. We start to see the rise of what we call the pre-reformers. Um, many of you have heard of John Wycliffe, uh, Jan Hughes, Peter Waldo. Um, so we're really going to start to see the, the essence of the Reformation that we um, start to, to come into view. Because this period I've been talking about is all these bad developments. Well, now we're going to start talking about people that notice these bad developments and saw them as bad and want to do something about it. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to read this quote. This is a so now I want to help kind of transfer your mind of the Middle Ages as all these all this bad stuff and try to highlight some of the good. So actually, before I read that, one of the ways that we can uh, kind of harken back to the good of the Middle Ages, what good was there, was a lot of the way that they thought about things. So we are very influenced right now by Enlightenment ways of thinking. So the Enlightenment was kind of in the 1800s where human reason kind of took off and like, we don't need God. We don't need anything. Human reason is all we need. Just use your brain. Think for yourselves. In fact, me and Alyssa were just on a trip and I saw a, a bumper sticker that said, uh, what exactly did it say? It said, keep your, um, keep your prayer out of my schools and I'll keep my thinking out of your church. So that's just them knocking the church, think, saying like, well, the church doesn't think for itself. So what, are the, what, what is that? I mean, that is enlightenment way of thinking right there to say, Human reason, humanism, we, we, that triumphs. We, you know, if you Christians would just think, then you would see that, that your God is folly. Um, the Middle Ages didn't have that. Didn't have that at all. Um, Christianity was just uh, very much the, the, the air people breathed. So, so that, that's why you see in the Middle Ages uh, beautiful architecture and beautiful poetry. It's because everything that they did kind of revolved around the church and how, how does... How does God get glorified? I mean, in the midst of all that, we have a bunch of the junk that we've seen. But that way of thinking is something that I think we should try to harken back to a little bit and kind of evaluate how maybe modern ways of thinking have influenced our thinking so much, uh, in a lot of ways. So let me read this uh, quote. This is a guy named Philip Schaff. Schaff. He's a Presbyterian uh, um, theologian in the late 1800s. It is this precisely which renders the Middle Ages so grand and venerable that religion in this period appears the all-moving, all-ruling force, the center around which all moral struggles and triumphs, all thought, poetry, and action are found to revolve. All sciences and philosophy itself, the science of the sciences, were handmaids to theology. So everything 
bent to theology, the study of God. That was the preeminence to theology, which based itself on the principle of Augustine, faith comes before understanding. According to the reigning idea, the state stood related to the church like the moon to the sun, from which it borrows all its light. So even the state, I mean, I consider the huge melding of the church and the state as a bad thing for sure, but it is good in the sense that the state cared about the church and what the church thought, and they, and they combined itself way too much, but um, the idea of the, the state caring about the God, which it derives its authority, is a very biblical concept. The state only has authority because God gives it authority. So the Middle Ages saw that. Um, all forms of life, all national manners were suffused with magic interest from the unseen world. The holy sacraments ran like threads of gold through the whole texture of life in all its relations from infancy to old age. The different arts vied with each other in the service of the church. The most magnificent and beautiful buildings of the period are the cathedrals, those giant stone flowers with their countless turrets, storming the heavens and bearing the soul on high, and their mysterious devotional gloom, visited never by the light of the natural day, but only by mystic irradiations poured through the stained glass. Poetry sang her deepest and most tender strains to the Lord and his bride, and the greatest poet of the Middle Ages, Dante, has left behind him in his divine comedy an image simply of the religious spirit and theological wisdom of the age as occupied with attorney itself and all its dread realities. Truly a great time, and for one who is prepared to understand it, fraught with the richest spiritual interest. So I really like that quote because it, it's imp we can't neglect either one. It's important to look back at you know the tragedies that happened in the Crusades and stuff like that, and you know the bad doctrine that was developing. A lot of it just because of this geopolitical struggle. Um, those are bad things. We, we want to recognize them for what they are, um, but we also don't want to lose sight of the beauty that was there, the gospel, the true gospel being in there, at least in some remnant, it was there. And then uh, what I view as really good ways of thinking. All of life is a, we live in a life that is a Christian life. You know, we don't, we're not Christians here on Wednesday and Sunday morning. We're Christians as we go out to work every day, as we go care for our kids. You're not uh, uh, just a, a, a mom. You're, you're a Christian mom. That means something. Um, I'm a dentist. I want to be a Christian dentist and all that. So everything that we do, uh, we want to do as Christians and do it to the glory of God. The medieval time period did a, did a good way of thinking about a good way of thinking about it, maybe not such a good way of acting it. <laughs> but that mindset is something to be to be commended. So I wanted to close with a hymn that a lot of us might know um, that was written in the Middle Ages called O Sacred Head Now Wounded. I'm just going to read it unless y'all belt it out. That's fine. But, but this one was written by Bernard of Clairvaux, the guy we talked about. Well, actually, he was credited with it, I think, later that it was actually this guy that nobody really knows but a poet named Arnulf of Leuven. I don't know who that is. So maybe Bernard actually didn't write it. That's really not important. <laughs> um, o sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How art thou pale with anguish, with sure abuse and scorn? How does that visage languish? which once was bright as morn. What language shall I borrow to thank the dearest man for this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never ever outlive my love to thee. It's a beautiful one.